Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Bernardo Batislazo. And in the podcast today, we had Art Carden, who's an economic professor at the Brock School of Business at the University of Sanford in Alabama. We're going to be talking today about his book, Let Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Burgundy Deal Enriched the World, co-author with Drady McCloskey. And I want to say that this podcast is produced in collaboration with uh, Ranjit Dinghi, who's the uh, editor of the books review at EHNet. <clears throat> EHNet is owned and operated by the Economics History Association with the support of other sponsoring organizations. You can find a link to the review of this book in EHNet. Art, thank you very much and welcome to New, New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How how do you uh, decided to become an economic historian? Yeah, so this is this is interesting. Um, when I went to when I first started at graduate graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis, I was interested in, in political economy and public choice and public finance and things like that. And I knew Douglas North's reputation. And um, incidentally, my my then girlfriend, now wife was taking a class at the University of Alabama. She's two years younger than I am, taking a class called The Mind of the South. So we spent a lot of time every night talking on the phone about Southern history. And I started thinking, wow, you know, this is something where there's a lot of neat work to be done. And um, I got really, really interested then in economic history. And of course, took the courses, worked with Douglas North and John Nye at WashU, wrote my dissertation on Southern economic history, kind of got sidetracked for a little while because I've uh, I've done a lot of work on Walmart and that ended up being, that was supposed to be a one-off paper and that ended up becoming an entire research agenda. But fortunately um, in working on the book with Deirdre and now I finally got to teach an economic history course this past May term for the first time in gosh, over 10 years. So I, I get to return to my first love. Thank you very much. That's super interesting. So how was it that this collaboration with uh, Drady came about? So a lot of this is, uh, it's sort of an interesting object lesson in being in the right place at the right time and trying to put it and kind of putting yourself in certain places. Um, yeah, I met Deirdre when I was in graduate school and, uh, she probably the, the first major interaction we had was actually the weekend before my dissertation proposal. She presented the first volume of the bourgeois era trilogy at WashU, and my advisor John Nye asked if I would pick up, asked if I'd pick her up at the airport and then take her back. And the answer, of course, is yes. Do you want to, you know, spend thirty minutes in your car 
one way there, another way back uh, with Deirdre McCloskey's Undivided Attention. And uh, so I got to do that. She found out about some of the work I was working on and thought it was interesting. Uh, I remember her exclaiming that I was ambitious when I told her I'd read the entire first draft of the first bourgeois book. Uh, we continued to correspond over uh, the next several years. And then in 2012, actually, we were both in the Competitive Enterprise Institute's iPencil video series. And they did the filming in Chicago. And she and I had lunch together. And she said that she was interested in working on kind of a shorter, popularized version of the Bourgeois trilogy and asked if I would be interested in being the co-author. And of course, the answer to that is yes, I would absolutely be interested in and willing to do that. And it was a fantastic experience. Um, I learned a lot about, obviously, a lot about a lot of different things. There are a lot of ways in which, with respect to our collaboration, I'm kind of the Stephen Dubner to her Stephen Levitt. If uh, if you analogize analogize our book to to Freakonomics, but yeah, that's basically the that's basically the origin story of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. Um, of course, for anybody who's not aware of McCloskey's work, uh, the Bourgeois trilogy is a, a three part uh, series that appeared between two thousand and six and two thousand and sixteen in which she portrays her views on economic history and much else in about 2,000 pages. So, yes, I think it's commendable that you've read the three volumes cover cover to cover and have produced something that uh, us mere mortals can... can um, Get to grips and then go to the to the main to the main course in in the relevant uh, in the relevant parts. So, <clears throat> how is it then that you decide what to pick up from this massive piece of work and try to put it into into um, more more you know general terms? Because there's going to be a lot of choosing and what to leave in and what is going to be left out. Right. So the book went through a lot of different versions. And in fact, it's actually kind of funny because like so much has been cut out and so much has been added in and things like that. There's sometimes I forget what's in the book and what isn't uh, or like what we cut out and, and things of that nature. But yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to ask, okay, what are, what are these central and essential ideas? Um, I, I had a bit of an epiphany in late 2018. I was actually teaching an Institute for Humane Studies weekend seminar at Faulkner University with my, my friend Jason Jewell. And I realized, wait, our, like our the perfect book, the perfect version of this would be something that students could read, could do like an Institute for Humane Studies weekend seminar and read the entire book. Um, enough that they can do it in all of the sessions or so, and something, for example, that could be used uh, in an undergraduate course or even with graduate students if you don't want them to have to read the entire trilogy. But yeah, there we, we ended up having to make some hard choices about what to keep and what to, what to toss. But we, we thought kind of our ideal reader is somebody who buys books in airports and who could like skim it quickly on say a flight from Birmingham to Chicago or read it a little bit more carefully on a flight from say Chicago to LA. And that's kind of what drove what stayed in and, and what ended up, what ended up uh, on the cutting room floor. Okay. Excellent. So what was the, um, you know, in, in terms of the hard choices, what was the hardest choice to, to leave out? If you can remember that bit. Hardest choice to leave out. Oh gosh. Let's see here. Um, um, well, I wrote a chapter about Ayn Rand that uh, I don't think Deirdre liked as much as I did. So it's kind of hard to leave that one on the cutting room floor. Uh, I think that's, that's, uh, I'm smiling as I say this, because this is a, it, 
yeah, obviously there are some there are some things on on which we we com- didn't completely see eye to eye. But of course, she's the sort of senior author in the project, and and uh, uh, that was that was kind of tough. Um, I had a, a chapter about retail that I ended up chopping out because I I and then this was kind of hard to do, but I was I wasn't sure about the sourcing on the chapter. So, and you know, the book was already, was already pretty long. So, so there's some specific case studies and some specific examples that, that sort of get left out that um, would have been fun to talk about a lot of stuff about different authors and, and the ways that they were writing about commerce in the 16th century and 17th century and 18th century. Um, again, a lot of that is, is either, remains in Deirdre's big bourgeois trilogy or in a bunch of other sources that we consulted that we ended up having to leave out as well. But um, yeah, that was, I wrote, who was it? Voltaire, I think you said, uh, um, he apologizes for writing a really long letter. He didn't have a lot enough time to write a short one. So we ended up having to, yeah, we, we, we had, had to make a, had to make a lot of, a lot of hard choices. Yes, I can, I can imagine. So let's, let's get into the, in, into the book it, itself, which is, as as we agree, trying to bring out the the soul, if you want to, of of this trilogy and present it to a to a wider audience. So the basic premise, as I understand it, is um, how liberty has been fundamental in the development of of and progress of um, Western societies and, and world economics in since the 16th century. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, liberty and dignity are the kind of the two key words. Why dignity and why liberty? So liberty first, just for, for the reason that every economist kind of understands. Um, open and competitive markets are important because uh, when people have the freedom to pursue profit, they get resources into the right uses and things like that. Importantly, liberty matters a lot because... Um, it gives us it gives us the freedom to innovate to look at some pattern of the way that the world is and say you know what I think I could do this better, and then be able to do that without having to ask anybody's permission or without having to worry about being thrown off a cliff, which was a problem in a lot of different places. And then there's also also the question of dignity, where being you know a shoemaker say or uh, in our modern context getting a degree in accounting and being a good accountant is something that we think of as being a a dignified thing to do. Being a merchant is not, um, not, not something that we're as suspicious of as we've been historically. Uh, You you mentioned things that, things that we left out. There's a, I remember reading a, and I'm paraphrasing this from memory, but merchants in, in Italy um, would write in the front of their, like in the front of their, their account books, you know, in the name of God and profit. And like they meant both. So first of all, the liberty to pursue profit. Second of all, the dignity to the dignity to have a little bit of esteem for people who had made the world a better place. One of the ways that we, um, I know Deirdre put it in, in the bourgeois trilogy, and that I think is is important, is the world changed from a world where um, innovation was suspicious and heretical and looked down upon to a world in which they they built a statue of James Watt for his innovations in the steam engine. Exactly. I mean, there is this change in thinking about um, commerce and services in, in, in general and as, as they become central to um, economic progress and economic development. Um, so this would... Um, then how, how would this 
link to the Industrial Revolution, as you've mentioned, James Watt? Yeah, so we have this 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 wave of gadgets that sweeps across Britain, and um, part of part of it again is just is at the margin, just like small changes in people's liberty to do things, and small small changes in the degree to which we embrace, um, if for lack of a better word, kind of a, a democratic capitalist system where uh, anybody who wants to can try something, and again, it becomes. Uh, uh, Upsetting old patterns becomes something that is is not completely accepted and completely embraced, but at least something of which people are less suspicious. Again, I think it was, uh, gosh, Queen Elizabeth, I guess, who said that the, you know, the, the proper office of the soul is to obey. And we kind of pushed back against that a little bit. And I say kind of because obviously it was, it was extremely incomplete and there's probably a lot, uh, a lot more that we can do. But we, we went from uh, a world that rejected bourgeois virtue to being a world that embraced it. One of the examples we do use in the book is um, two plays, one, The Shoemaker's Holiday, and the other, The London Merchant. And The London Merchant is, is very much a celebration of commerce and a celebration of business and a celebration of, of honest dealing and innovating and things like that. And the Shoemaker's Holiday, which had come out about 100 years before in the late 16th century, um, was really kind of poking fun at the, the idea that a shoemaker could be noble or the idea that making shoes could be dignified. Right. Let's briefly mention something that uh, Joel Mark, Mark, um, raises in his, in his review and that has to do with the Enlightenment and more specifically with uh, how something that goes hand in hand with liberty is this uh, market for ideas, this application of ideas in, in, in everyday life and, and also key to, to progress. Um, and, and that... Uh, the, the the comment that is made is that probably this this importance of of how to make these uh, ideas applied um, is somewhat left out, giving too much uh, importance to to liberty. Um, so how how would you um, respond to that, or how would you feel about that? Yeah. So, so looking at the at the review. Um, so he points out that he says that we don't really or says that the Enlightenment plays no role in their account, despite its commitment to ideas. Um, if we didn't communicate that clearly, that's on us. Uh, we, we the last chapter is about Adam Smith, and we're trying at least to to convey the notion that in particular, the Scottish Enlightenment was really, really important. Um, fortunately, my, my hope is my hope is there will be a second edition someday. So this is something that I would want to I would want us to clarify, because I, there's a lot of. There's a lot of complementarity between the story that uh, that we're telling, or the story that Deirdre's telling, and the story that uh, Joel Mokir is telling about the Industrial Enlightenment, uh, in particular in his book, uh, his book, The Culture of Culture of Growth. Right. Thank you for clarifying that, uh, which is very very helpful. And um, then let's go back and, and continue with the with the book. How? So the premise is 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 you know all of these changes are happening in the 16th 17th centuries 
are, are very important. We have the Industrial Revolution. But then how does this portray into the 20th and 21st centuries? Yeah, so how, how do we apply this to the 20th and 21st century? Um, <clears throat> I think we, we look at, and so I teach at a, at a, at a Baptist university that's, that's very, very, very serious about its faith tradition. Um, so I'll kind of put it in, in that context. So it's, it's a place that you know, our students are very, very good at wanting to help people, like very, very good at wanting to help people. Um, it's not really clear that they're as good at, at actually helping people as they would like to be. And that's just true of any human being. Um, what, what I, where I think the application could be in the early 21st century is recentering our idea of what it means to live a good and benevolent life. Um, you know, a lot of churches, for example, will they'll have like special commissioning services for, say, someone, so people who want to become missionaries. So they'll have like a special service recognizing that people want to become missionaries or people going into the military sometimes. Some churches will do this. I've long said that I think it'd be fantastic if they if they held a, held a similar little recognition ceremony for people who took the CPA exam, you know, something like that. Some people who 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 went into innovative fields or who, or who, again, just decided to become a good accountant working for Deloitte or, or uh, E&Y or another major firm. Um, recognizing, I think, that, say, Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin and Larry Page have probably done more to advance the cause of education, say, than... Uh, a lot of people who have deliberately set out to advance the cause of education and to improve education and things like that. So, uh, in fact, actually, in one of Mokir's articles, uh, he refers to Google as the world's best research assistant. And I think about this every time I try to do something. I can I can look up enormous amounts of stuff and find enormous amounts of information that a few decades ago I would have had to go to a library to dig up. Um, uh, that's something that I would want more people to appreciate that uh, you can make the world a better place without necessarily directly and specifically intending to. And um, to note that zero, excuse me, positive sum transactions and innovation are in fact virtuous. Right. Yes, that, that's, that's interesting. And um, I'm sure that not everybody would, um, I agree with that. I'm I'm not challenging it. I'm I'm just saying that 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 it can be it can be um, you know well we have difference of opinion. I'm saying that having one with you, but um, but then how would this um, book do you think would be received by um, you know you you mentioned thinking of of selling it in. Airport. How do you think, or how would you like it to be received by, say, your your um, somebody working in a corporation, in a corporation, some somebody working in in industry? Mm-hmm. I think it would be. I would like for somebody working in industry, so somebody like who buys it and reads it on a flight from Chicago to LA for a conference or something like that. Yeah, they recognize that that in fact, like what they're doing is in a lot of ways the fountain of prosperity that um we got we got rich we created this world in which in which what we refer to as poverty in the united states is fantastic wealth in historical perspective 
that this happened not because of redistribution. It happened not because uh, we started giving more or anything like that. It happened rather because we embraced an idea that, say, like Calvin Coolidge uh, expressed during his administration that, say, the business of America is business, and further um, embraced innovation and creative destruction by noting that the creative part tends to outweigh the destruction part when we're considering the, the long-run history of innovation. Right. This would be a very Schumpeterian view of, of innovation and economic growth, no? Yeah. So it's... Um, I would like to. I would like to think that yeah. So we should. You know, obviously, um, when Amazon comes along, you know, maybe small local booksellers get knocked out of the market. Though that's that's ambiguous. Or when Walmart comes along, um, companies that compete directly with Walmart are probably not going to be long for this world. Um, we should note and acknowledge the fact that you know, someone who puts their puts their entire life into a mom and pop shop that gets quote unquote run out of business by Walmart. I mean, they've experienced a real and genuine loss, and we should acknowledge that and try to help them. Um, but at the same time, it's it's also worth noting and worth embracing that uh, again, the creative part of Walmart's entry or the creative part of Amazon's innovations far, far, far outweighs the destruction part insofar as they contribute an enormous amount to general human well-being. Right. So what would be then your your final thoughts on on the book in in terms of, you know, how is this second edition looking like? What is the yeah, feedback you're getting from other people on the book? Yeah, so the so the second edition, and this is just something I hope happens uh, at some point. We haven't we haven't formally talked about it. the paperback is coming out, I think, in, in November. Um, but yeah, my 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 idea for or goal for a second edition would be just you know, collect things like um, you know, like the points that Joel Mokir raises in his review, where either we're we're I, I think that there's a lot more agreement between between what we're claiming or what we're saying and what he's stating in his review and bringing that out a little bit more, highlighting the complementarities better, um, excuse me, adding new evidence as it's come up, because uh, that's one of the things I've noticed is just how rapidly new information emerges and how rapidly new scholarship comes along. Um, We've gotten a lot of feedback and uh, in fact, actually, I think we say in the acknowledgments, like email me if you have questions, comments, corrections, etc. And were we to do a second edition, I would like to yeah, basically take take what we've heard, evaluate it carefully, and then amend the text accordingly. Thank you, thank you for that, um, Card. So, what is the well? While that is on the on the back burner, or rather on the back burner, waiting to see if it if it happens. Um, what is your next big uh, project? Where are you working on these days? Yeah, so next big project, I have a handful of things. Um, a couple of co-authors and I have a, a paper about retail innovation, uh, specifically the careers of Saul Price, who launched, well, did a lot of things, but launched the Warehouse Club Revolution, ultimately, and Sam Walton. That's going to be in Essays in Economic and Business History. Um, I'm doing a lot of work right now about the South African economist William Harold Hutt, um, kind of digging into his ideas about institutional change, um, realizing that there's a gold mine there. There's a lot of stuff that Hutt said and that Hutt was, was doing first in thinking about the transition 
of Great Britain out of World War II, and then second, thinking about transitions in post-colonial Africa that apply a lot of important ideas we see, for example, in the public choice tradition. Um, I have in the last several years done a lot of work on uh, James Buchanan, winner of the 1986 Nobel Prize, have a paper forthcoming in Business Ethics Quarterly on Buchanan's ideas about the work ethic and what that means for uh, what that means for for economic growth, and again, and potentially the possibility of increasing returns. And um, then I have a, a handful of articles right now that I'm working on for the Elgar Encyclopedia Public Choice on slavery, capitalism, socialism, apartheid, the transitional gains trap, and coercion that should be available. Well, they're due on September 1st. So they'll, they'll definitely be available on the social science research network in draft form, at least by then. Super. That's uh, very interesting. So where uh, of, of the multiple things that you've uh, mentioned, how are you getting the archive material to talk about our, um, you know, South Africa? Yeah. So, so a lot of what we're, what we're getting there is from the hut papers specifically. So my co-author Philip W. Magnus has made a couple of visits to the hut papers of the Hoover institution. So we have a lot of things directly from his papers. Um, something I'm discovering is the amount of really interesting archival material out there that is available online. Um, obviously most libraries have online collections and, and things, but we were able to find, and this is actually a, a paper Uh, our new paper that is in the independent review, we discuss a, an exchange between Hutt and a, an African religious leader named ZK Matthews, who uh, actually spoke and gave a, an important lecture at the university of Cape town in the early 1960s. And they're corresponding about what Hutt calls the need for ironclad constitutional protections of property rights in a world of post-colonial transition. So um, this, again, is, is Google serving as the world's best research assistant. We're able to find a lot of archival material out there that we may not actually even have to travel to visit an archive in order to get. And again, if, if, uh, if you're familiar, if anybody listening is familiar with Phil Magnus's work, he's uh, I don't know that the guy sleeps and he um, has an incredible command of, of archival resources out there. My hope is to get out to Stanford at some point, maybe in the fall and uh, dig around in the hut papers a little bit. We have a, another potential collaborator who's an expert on South Africa who's going to take an excursion to the University of Cape Town for us while he's in, in South Africa in October. And uh, we'll just try to scrape together whatever we can get. Super. That's super interesting. Thank you very much, Art. Thank you very much uh, for being with us at the New Books Network and hope to have you again soon with a new book project. <laughs>